Uh, you know, old little Johnny, he was a fisherman. You know how fishermen tell some tales sometimes. He was at school on Monday, and the teacher said, Hey, what did anybody do this weekend? Little Johnny raised his hand and said, I went fishing with my dad. He said, Really? He said, Did you catch anything? Little Johnny said, Yes, ma'am. We caught all kinds of fish. He said, We caught 100 fish. She said, You caught 100 fish? He said, Yes, ma'am. She said, Well, how big were they? He said, Well, they, I know you might not believe this, but they weighed 100 pounds apiece. She said, Little Johnny, you mean to tell me you and your dad went fishing? On a boat, and you caught 100 fish that weighed 100 pounds a piece. He said, yes, ma'am. She said, that'd be 10,000 pounds. It'd sink your boat. That did not happen. He said, I don't know how many pounds it'd be in total, but we caught 100 fish, and they weighed 100 pounds a piece, and they're about this big. She said, Johnny, you are making that up. She said, what if I just made up stuff? Like, I'm on my way to school, and I'm driving my car, and this 10-foot-tall grizzly bear jumps out of the woods and starts attacking my car, and from the other side of the road, this little two-pound chihuahua comes up and grabs him by the nose, flips him over, beats him up, and chases him off. Would you believe that? Said, yes, ma'am, that's my dog. <laughs> now, we're going to try, try to be honest here, but, uh, you know, I have, after a meal like we just had with... The squash casserole that I ate in the stew and the brownies that were perfectly chewy in the middle that weren't overcooked, half and half, sweet, unsweet tea. And you get one plate and then you think, I probably need some more of that squash casserole. And you go back and get another and then you think, I probably need some stew and have chicken dumplings. I've, I've had a person that would say to me, Elder of the Lord's Church now, said to me, you know, after a lesson like that, the way I concentrate is I close my eyes. <laughs> after a meal like that, he said. He said, if you look over and my eyes are closed just because I'm concentrating more on your lesson. That was not true. That was, that was just an exaggeration. I mean, he was telling a tall tale. Hey, sure appreciate the afternoon and the morning. It's been thrilling to me. I haven't had a potluck meal since last March. And this one was phenomenal. And it's just so exciting to be a part of what you got going here. And I appreciate you letting me be a part of it for this morning and this afternoon. Thank you very much. We're going to be dealing with a principle that I think you all understand. At least you would understand it if it went against you. And that's the principle of stewardship. Let me explain. You go to the bank and you give them $3,000. You deposit it in a bank account. You come back about three weeks later and you decide you need some of your money. And so you go up to the teller and you give her all of your information and your ID and you say, hey, I deposited $3,000 some weeks ago and I'd like to take $500 of that back. And she gets this real shocked look and half offended. And she says, well, what do you mean you'd like to take $500 of that back? You say, well, I deposited here. This is a bank and I'd like to take some of it back. She says, well, we thought it was ours. And so we spent it how we wanted to. We've only got 50 bucks left. We'll give you 25. I hope you're happy. What would you think about a banking institution that treated your money like it was theirs? Well, you'd have a problem with that, wouldn't you? Because you know that banks are supposed to be stewards. Now, imagine, uh, let's say, a couple that was going to be traveling for the summer. And there was a young college-age girl that needed a place to stay. And so they said, hey, we've got lots of plants in our house and some pets and things that need to be taken care of. If you will come and take care of our plants and pets and things, then we'll let you stay in our house for free. 
And she says, okay, that's great. That's exciting. Appreciate that. And so she does. She comes to the house and she starts taking care of the plants and pets and things. But, you know, one day she walks in and she's been in the house about two weeks and she thinks to herself, you know, I just, I don't like that wall between the living room and the kitchen. I really just don't like it. I kind of like more of an open floor plan. And so she just takes the wall out. Takes her a few weeks. She gets her sledgehammer. She just takes the wall out and just kind of picks it all. And now it's open. And she says, you know what? I don't even like, I don't like the color of the bathroom that they got, so she paints it red and white stripes, and there are several other things. She, she pulls up all the shrubs in the front, because she doesn't ever like shrubs. She plants different plants, and she didn't really like mulch anyway. She kind of liked that river gravel, and so she puts river gravel down, but she kind of like river gravel in her bedroom, too, so she puts river gravel all over the floor in the bedroom, and she changes everything in the house, and the people come home. Are they excited about what's been done to their house? <laughs> no, she was a steward. She was supposed to be doing with the house what they wanted her to do with it, but she acted like it was hers. And so because she acted like it was hers, she misunderstood the relationship that she had with the person supplying the resources, right? We understand the stewardship. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you look in verses 1, 2, and 3, you read that Paul says, Moreover, in a steward... It is mandatory that a steward be found faithful. Now, what does it mean that a steward be found faithful? Well, that means that a steward uses the master's possessions in a way that are congruent with the will of the master. You don't take out a wall if you're a college girl staying at someone's house. You don't use the money that someone deposits in a bank like it's your money if you're the bank. You do certain things with it and you don't do certain things with it. And it all rests on the principle, the fact, the reality, that the money is someone else's. The house is someone else's. And so when you're looking at this idea, this understanding of stewardship, what happens to people sometimes is that they think they own stuff. They think it's theirs. They think the money that they make, boy, they work hard for it and they deserve it. And for some reason, they have any prerogative they want to deal with that money how they want because it's theirs. Well, we're going to disabuse ourselves of that false notion. Money is not yours. You have never owned anything. Even if you thought you did, I have never owned anything. We kind of think we do sometimes. But I'm going to show you from the Bible that the reality is everything you have is on loan to you from God and you're responsible to him for how you deal with that. Now, let's start and see how this goes. Turn to Luke chapter 12 with me. The story is often referred to as the rich fool. And there in Luke chapter 12, you see a man who is, you know, he's very wealthy. And I think he is behaving in a way that is very congruent with how lots of people in the United States of America think. This man is so wealthy that he's got enough to lay up for himself for years to come. Basically, this man's thinking about retirement. That's what he's doing. He's storing up things for him to retire. And he says right here in verse, oh, Luke chapter 12, you look right there in verse 16. He says, the ground, Jesus is talking about this story, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build greater barns and there I'll store all my goods and my crops and I'll say to my soul, soul, you've many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. 
But God said to him, you fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. Now I'm going to read this again more slowly and with some emphasis. And let's see if we can understand what's really going on in the thought process of this individual. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? And I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and I will store on my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, What's this guy thinking? Me. My. I. I have this because I've done this and I'm going to do that because I own this. And notice at the end of the story when God says to him, this night your soul will be required of, the, of you, then whose will these things be? Now there's an easy way to, know if, to, to learn and see and know if you own anything. Die. That's all you got to do. You die... And guess what? Your stuff doesn't go with you. You know why? Because it wasn't ever your stuff. Now people have tried to fight that. Especially the pharaohs. And those pyramids that were built to the memory of those pharaohs. You probably, if you've studied them at all, you know what they did. I mean, they would have their favorite wives. Lots of times they were polygamous and they'd have their favorite wives. They would commit suicide when the pharaoh died and they'd be mummified and put in those pyramids. Their favorite servants would be killed or voluntarily commit suicide and they'd be mummified and put in those pyramids and then all the gold and they'd have huge caches of weapons and they'd even put chariots and their favorite horses and they, they mummified their favorite pets. Cats. We found all kinds of mummified cats because the Egyptians loved cats and they wanted their favorite pets to be with them in the afterlife and all that gold and treasure. And you know where all that gold and treasure stayed after those pharaohs died? Right in that pyramid. And now it's in a museum, and somebody else owns it, and somebody else has authority over it, and somebody else will have authority over it until that person dies. And then someone else will get that, and that. You know why? Because it's never been yours. Now, the irony of the rich fool's statement was the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. What was doing the work? His ground was what was doing the work. If he had done the exact same work on ground that wasn't fertile, he wouldn't have had two pieces of wheat to rub together. And the ground was what was doing all the work, and yet this man thought it all belonged to him. Well, that's the problem. When you start thinking that it all belongs to you, you forget who really owns the stuff. You know, my... Friend, I wrote a book with John Farber, a friend of mine from college, on this subject of giving. And he talks about a professor from Free that we both knew while we were there. And this professor had a real good understanding of stewardship. And he would, when freshmen would come in and they would need to move things into their dormitories or out of their dormitories, he had a truck. And everybody knew you could just go to this professor and ask him for his truck. And boy, with a smile on his face, he'd be like, oh yeah, hey, we got one. You know, hand him the keys. He said, well, but I, you know, just before you take it, you've got to realize it's not my truck. Well, that would take him aback a little bit, and they would say, well, it's not your truck. I thought you were loaning it to me. He said, well, I am, I'm loaning it to you, but it's not mine. It's God's truck. And God doesn't like dents and scratches. 
Well, you know, I don't know how God feels about dents and scratches, but the guy understood the idea that I might have my name on the title of this truck, but ultimately it's God's stuff. Now, if you wanted some more evidence of that, you go to Psalm 50. Let's turn over there. It's probably the most famous passage along these lines as it relates to God owning everything. And there in Psalm 50, you see God basically talking to the Israelites and He's saying, you know, if if I was hungry, I wouldn't have to beg you for something to eat. It's not like I'm one of the idols that you feel like you've got to give stuff to to keep them going. I don't need what you've got to keep going. And He says right there, verse 9, I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all its fullness. Now that idea, every beast is mine and all the birds of the field. And I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Now what does he mean when he says I own the cattle on a thousand hills? Anybody in here own cows? Anybody got cows? Okay, my dad's got some. And... I've always, living in Middle Tennessee, love, love a spring day on a rolling hill in Middle Tennessee where the grass is lush and green. And to look up, and for some reason, I just love, we had Brahma cows when I was growing up. They're the white kind with a hump, and we would invite our friends over and tell them they were uh, hybrid camels, and they would believe us, and it was a lot of fun. But I, I always loved a, a black Angus cow. That's what I've always loved. Now, I'll take a Brangus because they're, in fact, a Brangus, I might like it better because it's a little more short-haired. But anyway, just a good black cow. you got a, a, a herd of 50 of them on the side of a rolling, lush, green hill. It goes down into a valley, and there's a red barn, and there's an F-250 truck sitting right beside it. And, you know, it's the premier King Ranch edition. And right beside that, you got your John Deere tractor. And, and now that farmer's doing pretty good, now, you ask the real simple question, who owns those cattle? Well, Farmer Brown thinks he owns Oh, when, when the Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, is that a thousand hills where somebody else is not already claiming ownership? Like, oh yeah, man, sorry, but that's Farmer Brown's cows. God must own the ones over here that aren't claimed. Well, you know what we're saying there. God happens to own those 50. Farmer Brown thinks he owns them, but he's just... Being a steward of it. Oh, and by the way, that barn is God's too. And the F-250, that's God's too. And you know that tractor? God owns it too. You see, we think sometimes we own the stuff. And now, what I'm going to show you is, when you think you own it, it's a lot harder for you to give it back to God because for some reason you think you're giving Him something. You think somehow you're making God's life better. But hold on just a second. You never owned it. He's just letting you use it. Now I'll tell you, you want to get frustrated. Give your kid a bag of potato chips and ask for one back. You ever done that? Oh, you know, as I preach and teach about stewardship, lots of times all this stuff will come up. And I, you know, I've got, especially one of my children, I'm not going to say which one, but one of my children... You know, like, I'll buy, I mean, I'll buy them the good chips. Like, name brand, Cool Spring, I mean, uh, Cool Ranch Dorito. And I'll give him a chip, or, or, or get him some, oh, so there's this place that's got some real good 
uh, tater tots there in Columbia, Tennessee. I'm buying some tater tots or chips. And, and I'll be like, hey, man, can I have one of those chips back? He's got a whole bag of them. And be like, yeah. He looks in his bag, pulls me out one about this big, hands it to me. And I would look at him and I say, dude, I buy, buy you the whole bag of chips. And you're going to give me back one tiny little chip after I bought you the whole bag? You know, last time I think we're kind of like a little kid. I mean, God gives us a whole bag of chips. He asks for something back. I'm like, yeah, we'll pinch off a little. I mean, we don't even like little crumpled ones anyway, do we? It's never been out. Now, let me show you how that works. I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is going to probably nail down this principle as well as any passage in the Bible. You have God through Moses. This is the last sermon that Moses is ever going to give. He's got 30 days to live. He knows he's not going into the promised land. But he's telling the Israelites what he is going to know and explain about their time as they go in. And he says right here in verse, let's start in 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. That sounds like an amazing place, doesn't it? Really? Well, hold on just a second. Uh, what if you moved into a place and your source of water was the creek next to your house? I mean, sounds pretty exciting if you've been living in a desert, but it doesn't sound really exciting if you've been living in a house with indoor plumbing. Does it? Oh, and it wasn't refrigerated either, and you couldn't get ice. And if you could get ice, it was the chunky block kind, and you couldn't get crushed like you liked it. I mean, we look at the promised land and that seems real exciting to us, but think about this. What if you took someone from the promised land? They had just moved in and the springs of water were coming down the hills and they, they could dig iron out of the rocks of the hills. You've got all the metal products you want and you didn't ever dig any iron out of any hills, did you? Somebody else did that and they smelted the iron for you and then they formed it into what you wanted it formed into and you bought it at Lowe's. Now, you're sitting on this front pew right next to somebody from the promised land, and which of you two is more financially prosperous? Which of us two? I'm sitting right next to you. Me. I'm richer than that guy's ever been. And they're going into land flowing in milk and honey, and it's the promised land, a place unlike they had ever seen. They were thrilled. And I can go to Kroger and buy a pomegranate anytime I want. Uh, you know what? Maybe I don't even want to have to do all the work to get the pomegranate stuff out. I can just go to the palm juice. Or I can get some of that green machine, vegetable, whatever it is, that has juice stuff from 48 stalks of celery. And I'm, I don't even know how to grow celery, but somebody juiced it for me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they were living in the promised land. We're living in the promised, promised, promised land. If you're counting it from financial resources. Now, no problem with that. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Does that mean I ought to feel guilty about what I've got and, and worry about having too much? No, no, no. That's not what God said. It's not what God said at all. In fact, watch what God does say. Look in verse 10. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Should you feel guilty about getting to eat 
virtually anything you want, anytime you want. No. It's not what the text says. You should not feel guilty about having money. Now, you should help your financial prosperity to help you realize that you have a responsibility with it. You shouldn't feel guilty about it. In fact, he says, great, when you sit down to a great meal like we had this afternoon, what do you need to do? Thank God for it. God, thank you for the cows that you let me have on my field. God, thank you for my new tractor. It makes things so easy. Thank you for my great truck. Thank you for my car that lets me drive down here at 70 miles an hour on cruise control and have a heated seat and a button that I can press and make it 80 degrees in here when it's 29 degrees outside. Thank you. I love that. But, but he said, beware. Lest you forget the Lord your God. Well, then he tells you how you're going to forget the Lord your God. You say, well, who would ever forget God? I mean, they, they've been moved into the promised land. They're eating bread without scarcity. I always think, I always land on that one. Bread without scarcity. How's that sound to you? You can eat as much bread as you want. You know, I can go to Aldi. I don't know if you guys shop at Aldi. I found that Aldi's pretty good. I don't know if you got Aldi around. But they got the little loving whole wheat bread that is comparable to the stone hearth bread at Walmart. Walmart, that's like two seventy nine. Aldi, buck fifteen. I mean, it's legit too. It's soft. It makes a great peanut butter and jelly. Do you know that there's never been a day in my life, never, that I could not have eaten all the whole wheat bread that I wanted? Never. I could, I'm, two loaves of bread for $2.30. Okay, he said, be careful that when you're going to eat all you want, you don't forget the Lord your God. Well, how would you forget the Lord your God? It's not like anybody sets out to forget the Lord their God. Now watch what he says. This is how a person forgets God. Verse 17, then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hands have gained me this wealth. That's how you forget God when you think you've got it because of something you did. Now hold on just a second, Kyle. Now I've got, I mean, hey, I've got the money I've got because I work hard. Really? Is that true? I've got the money I've got because I'm a wise investor. I've got the money I've got because I'm frugal. I'm not a big spender. Okay, now let, let me qualify it and say, if you work harder than not, you'll have more money. If you're more frugal and if you invest wisely, you'll have more money than not. But you don't have money and you don't have the stuff you've got because you work harder. And I don't either. You know, have, have you or do you get up every day at the crack of dawn, go out with a tool that you made yourself. Scratch around in land that hasn't been fertilized properly in centuries and grow enough rice or beans so that your family of six can barely live. And then when you get home at the end of that day after it's dark, make your own clothes, make your own wooden utensils, Make yourself a fish trap that you can use on the weekends to go down and catch a few fish that you might get to sell at the market. And in the course of your life, you'll make less in the entirety of your life than one of us sitting in this auditorium today will make make a minimum wage working at McDonald's in a month. 
Now, why do I have the money I've got and the guy in Honduras that I'm thinking about right now who works 16 or 18 hours a day to feed his family and just eats beans and rice? Why does he have less than I do and works three times as hard? Well, it's because God's put me in a position and put you in a position where your work allows you to have more financial resources than that guy's done. You know, when you think about that, you think, oh, that's, that ain't fair. To who? Not fair to whom? Because maybe you remember Jesus' statements, how hard is it for a rich man to enter heaven? It's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But, take heart, even though we happen to be the rich people, with men that's impossible, but with God, all things. Are possible Just because we've got more money doesn't mean our life is better. And what we find lots of times is when we compare our happiness level to the happiness level of people who do work harder and make far, 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 far less. We're not nearly as happy lots of times. And when you go to start preaching to people about the gospel, guess what communities are the less receptive? The ones where they got the most money because they feel like they've arrived. We, we feel like we've arrived, don't we? No, well... As you look at that, we don't have money because we're hard workers. Now, there is a principle in the book of Proverbs that slothfulness will bring uh, about a series of poverty, etc. And that working harder is a better situation than not working hard. And that if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat over to the Thessalonians, Paul said. But that's not why you got money. Well, I got money because I'm a wise investor. Really, was, was Job a wise investor? Looked like he was. Was he wise, as wise of an investor the day after he lost everything as he was the day before? He hadn't changed his investing strategy. And yet the day after all those things happened, he was absolutely, completely broke because God said, I want my stuff back, in essence. Allowed Satan to take it. Well, I'm frugal, though, Kyle. I'm a, I'm a frugal person. Okay. You know, are you so frugal? And I've seen this happen. That you will get into other person's garbage and take their plastic water bottles that are less than five cents a piece and use that for your fine china that if you see a piece of rubber blown out from a tire on the side of the road, you will get that piece of rubber and you'll cut out soles for shoes for you and the rest of your family and you'll literally wear tire rubber-soled sandal-like shoes until they wear out. Are you that frugal? I mean, I've talked to some people that if it's a good, real-deal brand Ziploc gallon bag and you only had some crackers in it, well, I mean, yeah, I mean you might rinse that out and fold it up and let it dry, use it again. But you're not using anybody else's plastic water bottle. I'm not either. I mean, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching, oh, okay, I'm preaching at you, but I'm preaching at myself. To work with me. I'm preaching with you. I can't really say I'm preaching with you, but we're in this together. I don't have money because I'm frugal. Boy, I try to get every deal. I mean, I try to get five cents off of gas here and there and every deal you can get, but I've got money because God gave it to me. To use while I'm here. And when I leave here, it's going to be gone because it always has been, always will be God's. Now, when you start thinking, okay, it's God's, when you go to Malachi and he says, well, a man robbed God, and you say, no, person one, well, you've robbed me. Well, what do you mean I've robbed you? Well, I let you use some of my stuff and you didn't give me back what I asked you to give me back. And you stole it. Okay. So God expects certain things from me with the stuff. Well, 
I'm going to take you to probably what I think is the most exciting principle of giving that you'll read. It's in the book of Luke, chapter 6. And in Luke, chapter 6, you're going to read the giving principle that is a spiritual truth and controls and manages all interactions of giving. This spiritual truth. Verse 38 of Luke chapter 6. Give, and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, it's the principle of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. You reap after you sow. Notice that the imperative, the first thing that you do with God's stuff is you give it to Him. Hey, I've asked for this much back. Are you going to give it to me? You give it to Him, and then He says, it will be given back to you. But I want you to look at the process of giving back to you. This is why I find this subject so thrilling, so exciting, because here's what He said. It's going to be given back to you good measure. Now, I want you to picture this with me. This is a scene where there's a man at the market who's selling grain. And let's say you gave somebody grain, and some poor person came to your house, and they said, man, I'm just really hungry. You got anything for me to eat? And you said, yeah, I got some, and you had a big tub of grain, and you had a, oh, what I'm thinking of right now is a, mine's a little blue Tupperware cup that I'm thinking, if I had a bin of grain, what would I scoop out? Okay, a blue Tupperware cup, I grab it, scoop it out, and pour it into something and give it to the guy and say, there you go, that should be enough for you to eat today. So you go to the market, you want to buy some grain, and you come up to this person and he says to you, what did you use to give to somebody today? And you pull out that little Tupperware cup. Now, sometimes it might be that we didn't give a whole Tupperware cup, we gave them a little teaspoon. And we pull out that teaspoon because we hadn't been all that generous. We hadn't been a liberal, cheerful, generous giver. And so we've got a little teaspoon. And God says, okay, give me that teaspoon. Well, man, it looked big going out when you were giving it to a person, but when you give it to God, that little teaspoon doesn't look that big, does it? Let's go back. Okay, all right. Let's go back to the Tupperware. The teaspoon's a little bit small. We don't want any of that. We got the Tupperware cup, right? He says, okay, give me the Tupperware cup. So he takes that Tupperware cup from you. He's got a big old pile of grain. It looks like it's great. He dips it down, and he has as much as you gave to that poor person that visited your house. Scoops it out to the top. But then God says, he presses it down. You ever gotten a bag of potato chips that you thought was a full bag of potato chips? And you opened that bag of potato chips, and it looked like somebody had taken it and scrunched those potato chips to pieces. And when you got it, it probably was full before you got it. But you open up and you look at it, it's, it's, it's hardly even a third full. And you think, what happened to my potato chips? You know, maybe. I don't know if you did this growing up. I, I was in kind of lawn care, had my own grass cutting business. And we would rake leaves in the fall. And we'd get those big old black trash bags and we'd take huge armfuls of leaves and we'd put them in the bag and it would look like the bag was full. Right? 
Well, then with just a little effort, you close the bag and you press it down. Last time you lean on it, it's kind of jump up and down. Then you take another big armful and you put them in. And you press it down again. And then, well, then after about four times that, sometimes you would put it down there and you would get on the back of your Nissan truck and jump off into the bags and jump up and down. And you could get six or eight or ten big handfuls of those leaves in when at first you only thought you had one that filled it to the top. Okay, the person comes by your house, you have that Tupperware cup, you scrape it out, and it looks full, and you give it to them. God takes that same Tupperware cup, He scoops it out, and He says, presses it down. Well, then, after He presses it down, it says, shaken together. Well, like I said, those potato chips, or things that are loose like that, when you get a bag of potato chips lots of times, and you open it, it doesn't look like it was full, you go to the back and it says that contents settle out in transport. When does it mean that contents settle out in transport? It means that when they filled that bag up at the factory, it was filled to the top with chips, but as you shake it and move it and put it here and put it there and it gets shifted, what happens to those potato chips? Well, they fall down. So now you've got this cup of wheat, and it has been scooped up by God, and then God smushed it down, and guess what? God's a good smusher downer. He smushes it down, and then he fills it up again, and now it looks full. Oh, he's not done this time, though, because then he shakes it. Well, and you know when you shake it, it settles down to the bottom, and so now you've got a lot more than... The first time, okay, first it was the scoop, then it was the pound down, then it was the scoop, now it's the shakedown. And then, well, when you scooped up, it came right to the top, and you handed it to the person you gave it to them. Well, on this third attempt, God then scoops it up, and it's flowing over the top. He doesn't peel it off and flatten it out. Scoops it, smashes it, scoops it, shakes it, scoops it, it's pouring over the top. And he says, now here. Well, guess what? If you'd have used a five-gallon bucket, that's the same thing you'd have done in the five-gallon bucket. If you'd have done, used the back of a dump truck, it's the same thing he did to the back of the dump truck. You know, oh, at the end of the year, Chick-fil-A had receipt day. You know what receipt day is at Chick-fil-A? Oh, we got a Chick-fil-A there in Columbia. Receipt day is if you buy anything on this day and keep your receipt, then in the new year, it just happened to be this last week, January 4th through the 9th. You bring that receipt and you get everything free that was on your receipt. Well, buying the food originally is a little painful. You're paying for that. But, okay, but if you splurge on the milkshake and the salad and the cookie, well, when you first buy it, it's kind of tough. But then when you go back on receipt, reimbursement day, guess what you're glad you did? You're glad you splurged for the milkshake and you wish you'd gotten two salads and you're glad you got that because you get everything free because of what you put into it at first. See, God takes that cup or he takes that five-gallon bucket or he takes the back of that dump truck or he takes the entire storage room in your house and he feels it fuller than you ever feel. Why? Because he needs your stuff? Because he wants your money? You know, I've been preaching this stuff for years, years. And I was sitting with Brother Ken, and he said, Kyle, I was just waiting for you to say. And I never even thought of it. He said, I was just waiting for you to say, God doesn't need your money. All he's got to do is go down to the local, well, 
the fishing place there and pull out a large mouth bass and it'll be full of as much money as he wants to have. I mean, that's all he would need to do. That's what, that, uh, how many times have I read that story about the money being in the fish's mouth and realizing that fits perfect with God doesn't need your money. All he needs is a fish. And I'm sure he can just find it on the beach if he wanted. He doesn't need it. He wants us to see that if we give, he gives more. If we're generous, he's more generous. If we're loving, he's more loving. And one of the aspects that you start to realize about God in giving is that he wants you to do it so that you will see how he feels. God wants you to be a giver because he's a giver. God wants you to bless others because he gets the excitement of blessing others. He wants you to see how it feels. You know, as, as you start to look at what happens with the giving that is done in the Lord's church and the giving that you can do, you know, lots of times we look at that giving and we wonder, okay, well, where's it going? What's, what's happening to it? You know, the woman who gave her two mites to the temple, as I understand it, the Sadducees at the temple were very wicked. They were people that did not use God's money the way that they should. That's why Jesus came into the temple and he flipped over the tables of the money changers and he was very angry at them and said that they had made God's house a den of thieves. But notice that the text says that that woman was giving her money to God. Now, what the people did with it after she gave it to the temple for God, she wasn't responsible for that. She was giving it to God. However, what you see and what I've experienced as you look at that is when there is a congregation of the Lord's people who is taking that money and giving that money out to others to encourage others, to build up the church through any number of edification or evangelism, who is taking that money to bring glory and honor to the church by buying food and helping others or training preachers, any number of things that your money could go to, you get to see that money at work. You know, there's a book by Billy Smith. I was talking about stewardship, and he said this preacher came. No, no, he did. He, he went to this congregation, and he was talking about evangelism and how it takes money to evangelize and what happens when a, a, a nickel is given at the church and that nickel comes to a ministry and it is used to buy a single tract. And Brother Smith had a story about a man who in another country was reading a tract on what it takes to become a Christian. On how a person needs to be in Christ and how a person can be saved through that plan of salvation. And he was talking all about how this person read it and he was so enamored by it and believed it so much and he believed in Christ and he became a Christian. Because... He read the truth from a five-cent tract. And Brother Smith, at the end of it, said he had this little kid come up to him. And this little kid said, Brother Smith, kind of tugged on his coat. Brother Smith! And Brother Bill Smith looked at him and he said, Yeah, what's happening? He said, You know that tract? And Brother Smith said, Yeah, that one I was talking about in the sermon. He said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much do you say that cost? And Brother Smith said, Well, it cost a nickel. He said, Yeah, I know. He said, That was my nickel. Well, who knows? Maybe it was your nickel. But that's why God wants you to be a part of it. And what you see is congregations that recognize the idea of stewardship in the congregation and eldership. As they spread it around, the congregation often is more generous because they see, okay, this stuff is going to things that are literally making the world a better place. But ultimately, 
Ultimately, you see what God is really doing with money. In Luke chapter 16. I want you to see Luke chapter 16 and then the lesson will be yours. In Luke chapter 16, there's a reason God puts money on the table. There's a reason He has the process that He's got. You look in chapter 16, you see verse 10. And here's what He says. He who is faithful in what is least is also faithful in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous money, who will commit to you true riches? You see, God uses money to see any number of things, how much you love Him, what you're going to do, are you going to believe what He says, you're going to put it into practice, etc. But how you deal with money is ultimately how you will deal with the true spiritual blessings He wants to give you. You know, it, and it reminds me of well, the illustration of Susie and she was at the store and she was walking down the toy aisle and her mother was there and she looked over and there was a set of fake plastic pearls. And boy, they were so pretty to her. They just caught her attention and she really wanted to buy those. She didn't have the money really though. So she said, Mom, you know, they were like five bucks. She had three. She said, Mom, I really want these plastic pearls. They look so pretty. Would you help me buy these? She said, her mom did, said, well, would you spend your three dollars? And so she said, yeah, yeah. And if you just gave me the other two, I would cherish these plastic pearls. I'd wear them all the time. And so her mom said, okay, I'll get them for you. So she does. She buys them the plastic And she wears them everywhere. Wears them to school. Wears them to church. Wears them so much that, of course, they're the little fake ones. And that the, the little shiny pearl stuff starts chipping off. And you can see the little white plastic underneath it. But she wears them all the time. She loves them. Only time she takes them off is when she goes to bed or gets in the bathtub. It's the only time she puts them right there in a special place. So right when she gets out and dries off, she puts them right back. Well, her dad is sitting in the sitting in the living room. He's in his lazy boy, and he calls her and he says, "Come here, let me talk to you." So she jumps on his lap, gives him a big hug, and he says, "Do you love me?" She says, "Dad, you know I love you. Yeah, I love you." He said, "Can I have your purse?" Will you give them to me? And you know her little face just falls and she says, Dad, you know anything. You can have anything else besides my pearls. I got all kinds of toys. I got all kinds of stuff in my room. You have anything besides my pearls. I, I just want to keep my pearls. He said, okay. okay. Well, a couple of weeks later, he's sitting in his lazy boy, calls her up, and she jumps in his lap, gives him a big hug, big kiss. And he says, still got those pearls, I see. She said, oh, yeah, I wear them all the time. He said, do you love she said, Dad, you know I love He said, well, if you do, can I have your pearl? Well, she still just loves it. She said, Dad, you can have anything else I got, but this is my very favorite thing. I love these pearls. He said, okay. She hops down, but you know what's eating on her. She, next couple days, this is just bugging her. She's thinking, why would Dad knows how much I love these pearls. Why would he even ask? Now, why is he putting me in this position? That just doesn't seem fair. Why is he doing it? But finally, she just thinks, well... She comes up to him. She's almost crying. She's trying to fight it. You can see her little knuckles are white. She's holding those pearls in her hand, boy. She said, Dad, you know I love you. Here are my pearls. And she gives them to him. 
Well, he pulls her up into the lazy boy, gives her a big hug, and says, thank you so much. I was wondering when you would do that. And he reaches down beside the chair, and he pulls up a felt thin box that he opens up, and it's got that purple silk in it, and on that purple silk is fastened a string of the most beautiful real pearls you've ever seen. And he said, I was just wondering how long you would hold on to those fakes and not let me give you the real thing that I so want to give you. You know, I think so many times we hold on to our money and we think, this is it. When really, if we'll just give it to God, not only will He bless us emotionally, spiritually, financially, but he'll then be able to open the windows of heaven and bless us in a way that he's always wanted to. But he just can't as long as we are not being the generous liberal givers that he designed us to be. But when we do, he gives us the real spiritual blessings along with all the other blessings. And he says, finally, I get to bless you like I've always wanted to. Of course, the greatest blessing that he ever sent the jewel, the pearl of greatest price has always been the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ, the evidence of his love. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Emptying heaven of its greatest treasure, sending Jesus to this earth to seek and to save the lost so that you can be adopted into the family of God transported out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love have you done that have you accepted the true spiritual blessings that God has sent for you in the way of Jesus Christ if you haven't that's the first thing that's got to be done for God to be able to bless you the way he wants to bless you if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation in any way Hope you will as we stand and as we sing.